traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Richard Serrett here, your mad prophet of the airwaves. And welcome to Radio Free Canada News Notes and Opinions from the Underground for Tuesday, April the 12th. Peter Finch won an Academy Award for his portrayal of Howard Beale in the 1976 film Network. You just heard that iconic scene. It's about a veteran news anchorman, Howard Beale, who discovers that he's being put out to pasture. And he's none too happy about it. So after threatening to shoot himself on live television, instead, 
he launches into this angry televised rant. And it turns out to be a huge ratings boost for the network. Peter Finch died of a heart attack in the Beverly Hills Hotel about two months before the Oscars and his wife accepted the Academy Award for Best Actor. That rant is timeless. Everything Howard Beale was ranting about. Inflation. Rampant crime. The Russians. Corruptions. Corruption. It's as true today as it was nearly 50 years ago. He, were, he says, I, I don't want you to write your congressman. Actually, I do want you to write or call. Not your congressman. I want you to write or call your school trustee, especially if your child is attending high school in the Holton School Board. Let them know, in no uncertain terms, how you feel about biological male students being allowed to change in the girls' change room. I want you to let them know how you feel about biological male students being allowed to compete against girls in sports. Now, I am entirely sympathetic to young people who are suffering from gender dysphoria. They deserve understanding and care. But we don't do that at the expense of the rights of girls and women. There's a quick fix. It's called a unisex bathroom. Ever heard of them? I want you to call or email your MPP and let them know how you feel about critical race theory causing divisiveness in our schools. I want you to tell them how you feel about Bill 67, the Racial Equity in the Education System Act, which is a racist piece of legislation, a bill which will further codify CRT in our schools. This is all happening right now, and we need to stop it. And we need to let school trustees and MPPs know how we feel. Bill 67 will do nothing to foster racial harmony. It will do the exact opposite. It will further divide students. It will categorize them as oppressor and oppressed. It's sinister. It's rancid and it's toxic and it has no place in our society. So you need to get mad about Bill 67. You need to stand up for your daughters in high school. You need to call and you need to write, but you need to be kind. You need to be respectful. You need to be polite. But you need to stand your ground. And I want you to call your MPs and let them know how you feel about plans by the federal government to introduce digital currency in this country. Imagine a digital currency combined with digital ID. And we have a crime minister who is using the phrase social cohesion a lot these days. Have you noticed? Social cohesion. What does he mean by that? That's a term the communist Chinese use to justify their social credit system. 
It's necessary to ensure social cohesion. And it's coming here. And no, it's not a conspiracy theory. If you think it is, you're a useful fool. And we need to speak up now before it's too late. Or else, one day, you'll go online to book a flight, someplace warm, and your transaction will be declined because with digital currency, the federal government will have the power to do that. Freezing bank accounts of people who supported an entirely legal freedom convoy in Ottawa, that was just a dress rehearsal, a beta test. So you'll go to Expedia.ca to book a holiday, but it'll be declined. Because the government will say you already had a holiday last year. You've exceeded your yearly travel allowance. Your carbon footprint is too large. You'll go to the beer store. Maybe someone mentioned they think you have a bit of a drinking problem. Your transaction is declined. This is the future. This is the power of a central bank digital currency. And our Prime Minister laid the groundwork for it in the last budget. So you need to call your MP as soon as the show is over, of course. Or tomorrow or the next day, but you need to do it. And if someone tells you these things will never happen, it's just a conspiracy theory. Walk away. Because that person is a fool. A complacent fool. And that makes them dangerous. We have two choices. We can decide to be safe and taken care of. We can live in a risk-free world where we're taken care of, or our only concern is safety, risk reduction. Or we can be free. Freedom's hard. Freedom means pushing back every day to stay free because the ones that want to be taken care of, they'll never stop. It's like being pecked to death by sparrows. They never stop. They won't ever leave you alone. So do you want to live in a well-appointed cage with all your toys and your distractions and give up your freedom and your privacy? Or do you want to be free? Which means you get to manage your own risk. which means working without a net, as they say in the circus. I say no to the fur-lined trap, the well-appointed cage. It's still a cage. So first get mad, then call or write and vote. All right, uh, I want to play, this is a uh, another wonderful speech from the Commander-in-Chief, POTUS. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in foot him uh, foot, foot. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in foot him uh, foot, foot. <laughs> Wow, that's right up there with George Washington's uh, the harder the conflict, the greater the triumph. Or Jefferson's Honesty is the first chapter of the Book of Wisdom. Got to hear that again. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in foot him. Uh, foot, foot. 
that, that makes the Gettysburg Address sound like a big piece of crap, doesn't it? School children will be reciting this for a thousand years. When they erect statues to the 46th president, this will be inscribed on his statue. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was going to put him in uh, foot. There you go. All right. Uh, busy show for you today. We're going to revisit some earlier conversations and we'll mix in some, some live programming as well. Uh, Ryan Alford, professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University, will be here to talk about how we must keep the government accountable. They must be held to account for invoking the Emergency Act when the justification for it was a mountain of lies. Jonathan Kay will be here, editor, podcaster for the online publication Quillette, to talk about how woke mobs went after the statue of Alexander Wood last week in Toronto. He's a pioneer in the gay community from the 18th century. Tore it down. Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital will be here. And uh, we'll, he'll talk about excess deaths. He's seeing some disturbing data coming out of Alberta and British Columbia. Excess deaths in the ages of 0 to 44. More than 70% higher than expected. Uh, but coming up next, 51 days in jail. He spent 51 days, some of it in solitary confinement, some of it without water. Alberta pastor Artur Pawlowski returns to the program after quite an absence. He'll talk about his ordeal and... Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's personal vendetta against him. All right. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Tuesday, April the 12th. Facta non verba. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. Arthur Pawlowski, Pastor Arthur Pawlowski, uh, is with us from the Street Church in Calgary, Alberta, and uh, recently released from jail after more than 50 days. Some of that spent in solitary confinement, some of that spent without water, without access to a Bible, uh, and um, we're delighted to have him back on the program after a quite, a, quite an absence. Uh, Arthur, how are you? Uh, thank you so much for having me back in. Uh, I'm good. I'm doing okay. I mean... You know, I spent 50 days plus one in a crazy environment, uh, but uh, I'm out. Uh, people need to know that I'm still not a free man. I am uh, on house arrest facing dozen criminal charges for my horrible crime of um, speaking, speaking to the people, speaking to Canadians, telling people that, hey, um, stand up for your rights and and uh, fight for your country, because what kind of a nation are you going to have? Um, you know, for your children. Um, so I'm, I'm okay, but the fight continues. You know, it's interesting. We saw some, I played it, uh, a clip yesterday on the program, this chilling uh, audio from a video that was taken in Shanghai where we saw or heard the cries of desperation from people locked in their apartments, 30 million people uh, locked in their apartments, no access to food, water. Some of them so desperate, they were jumping from balconies. Uh, it was horrific to see. And then we had... Premier Jason Kenney of Alberta saying, you see, this is what happens when you when you try to achieve uh, zero COVID. And I just thought, is this man like, does he have any self-awareness? He has jailed more priests and pastors than communist China. 
exactly exactly i said the same thing i saw that tweet i actually uh, responded to it i said what a schizophrenic individual because um, that's exactly how i see those people they're double-minded they're hypocrites they're schizophrenic they are doing exactly the same thing to us of course on a smaller scale uh, but the truth is i spent over 30 days in solitary confinement where i saw people uh, yelling screaming banging on the wall staring at one spot uh, begging the guards to let them out crying and of course there was no mercy whatsoever for them and then me i was transferred to a max pod i was stripped naked i was put in metal boxes i was taken out of my cell out of my solitary confinement to a concrete cells just because i don't know i don't know who was telling them to do this to me when i asked the guards they were telling me it's coming from the upper management it's above my pay grade um then i asked the upper ups and they said it's coming from the political arena so jason kenny was telling people to treat me in this most horrible way and the so-called minister of justice taylor shandro as you are aware those boys uh, were the ones that broke the same restrictions the same mandates that i was with my brother david arrested by the SWAT team. So it's so bizarre. One law for me, one law for D. You're crying out and saying Putin is the bad guy. He doesn't allow the protests and the Chinese are horrible. And yet on a smaller scale, you're doing exactly the same thing. I mean, it's so bizarre. So uh, let, let's talk about what happened down in uh, Coots, Alberta. You went down there to pray with the, uh, the protesters. And yet they, you went down there for one day, you, you weren't involved in the organizing of it at all, you went, you prayed, you d- delivered maybe a sermon. Uh, they, they arrested you under a law, which I don't think has ever been used before. It's usually reserved for people that want to blow up pipelines and wellheads. Uh, has your lawyer been able to figure out what that was all about? It's crazy. I'm telling you, I have actually two firms representing me, a bunch of lawyers, and those two lawyers were contacted by a dozen other prominent lawyers from the country. And every single one of them says this is the most unusual case we have ever seen. This is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. I'm being charged like a terrorist. And yet I was not the organizer. I did not block the street. I did not even tell them to block the streets. I came as a pastor. I delivered a speech during that speech three times I told the people peacefully non-compliance, no swords, no guns, this is not a violent movement this is solidarity style this is Mahatma Gandhi style this is Martin Luther King Jr. civil rights movement style peacefully and yet Jason Kenney, this pathological liar, this schizophrenic individual, uh, he comes uh, in front of TVs and he says that uh, Pastor uh, Artur Pulaski doesn't even call me pastor um, uh, he uh, he, he can't even, um, you know, swallow that the title. Uh, he says someone that calls himself a pastor I should know that for inciting violence against other people, there are consequences. So he's talking publicly, saying that I have incited violence towards other human beings, which is a total lie. And yet he does it in front of the camera. Uh, he does it in front of the reporters and. He keeps me in solitary confinement, saying that I am the most dangerous Albertan. I have a document here that uh, I'm also- uh, Excuse me, Pastor, if I could just get you to hold on to that document. We'll pick it up on the other side. We'll take a quick time out. Pastor Archer Pawlowski, Street Church in Calgary, is with us 
talking about his ordeal, more than 50 days in jail, some of it in solitary confinement, some of it without water. Uh, we'll talk more about this on the other side. The Richard Serrett Show back in three minutes. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. And we're back with Pastor Archer Pawlowski from the Street Church in Calgary. Spent 51 days in jail. And uh, this stems from, in, in total, uh, Pastor Pawlowski, how many days in jail? Because there were another, there were a couple of other uh, stints that you were in prison. In, in total, how many days were you in jail? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Well, I was arrested 16 times. Uh, the previous arrests were three days, two nights. This one was 50 days. And on the 51st, first day, I was um, uh, released. I was uh, transferred after 44 days to Edmonton uh, to a place in a max spot, which is for the most violent, dangerous offenders that actually stopped, murdered inmates or attacked guards. I was told I'm going to spend 15 to 45 days or indefinitely, I received a document uh, from uh, the upper management telling me that I am dangerous and that's why they're going to keep me in isolation in extremely cold environment where instead of heat, and remember I am in Alberta, it's extremely cold uh, here, it was snow, I was shivering. And when I complained to the guards, um, I was told that at least I have fresh air. So I could not sleep. I could not do anything. I was shivering. And then the next day uh, was a bail hearing. My lawyers pleaded with the judge to interfere and to do something or I will end up really sick or dead. So I was transferred and listen to this. They took a pastor with zero criminal record, a nonviolent individual that I have been prominent part of the freedom movement since the very beginning. And they placed me in a mental ward. And when I walked in, I asked the guards, where am I? And they said, and laughing. Uh, they thought it was hilarious. You're in a wild, wild west. I said, what that means? You're in a psych ward. And when the doctor came to examine some people, he looked at me and says, hey, uh, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He says, what are you doing here? 
I said, well, I don't know. They uh, took me from my spot and they took me into this unit. He says, but they are not allowed to do that here. We have to approve who is uh, in this unit. And they went uh, behind the AHS's bags uh, to place me with a schizophrenic inside the cell. I was told by a number of inmates during this craziness that the guards were offering them incentives to murder me, to stab me, to beat me up on a number of occasions. So I think, of course, I cannot prove that, but I think they placed me with a, with a schizophrenic a man that murdered his brother with a machete, uh, hoping that he's going to stab me uh, during the night hour. Uh, but God was with me. I was praying with them. I was praying for that individual. Very quickly, uh, the inmates started to love me and visited me, asking for prayers. Because the last, the one thing that you are not receiving there uh, is hope. No one is giving any hope to those people. But I, three times a day, I was offered fentanyl. I was offered cocaine. I've seen people taking it, selling, buying. I've seen inmates snorkeling, snorking as, uh, those, those crazy things. Uh, so access to drugs is uh, very open. Uh, it's three times a day, actually, if you want to be hooked on heavy drugs. Uh, but hope, no, you can't find any hope. Correctional centers are not correcting anything. In Calgary, in a unit that I was placed there, they, they would not even give us checkers or chess. They don't want you to do anything. There's no social worker working with the inmates. I started later on when finally they released me from solitary after 30 few days. I started Bible studies. I started church services, prayer meetings with those boys because there's absolutely nothing being done with them. So you imagine you have a son or a daughter that that something happens and she or he ends up over there is not going to come a normal person is going to come a depressed suicidal or hooked on drugs. So uh, other conditions for your bail, uh, you're, as you say, other than being able to go to church and hold services, you're under virtual house arrest. Is there any element of compelled speech as there was prior where you were forced to say, you know, things in support of, of um, COVID measures and, and so forth, any other bail conditions? Now, there's a number of bail conditions, but nothing relating to speech, because I said to my lawyers that if that's the condition, don't bother getting me out. I'm going to stay here because I will be actually better off from jail than outside. From jail, I was able to make phone calls. I was able to do my interviews. I was able to encourage people. So I said to our lawyers, if they would muzzle me like a dog, uh, I prefer to stay in. So I think they knew that. And they, I, I believe the international pressure was so huge, especially from America, from American politicians and American media, uh, that they decided, okay, this is not looking good. Uh, the whole world is watching. The whole world now, by now, knows that this has nothing to do with keeping po people healthy or uh, saving lives. This is, I have become a political prisoner that's very clear. Anyone that is watching this story, 16 alert arrests for no crime, just for feeding the poor, which I do, thousands of people are feeding on the streets of Calgary, and just giving my sermons and encouraging people to stand up uh, for their rights. Uh, everybody by now, including even my enemies, they know this whole thing has nothing to do with anything else than politics. Uh, once you, uh, God willing, beat these charges with your legal team, will you be uh, launching a, a lawsuit against the, uh, the Kenny government? 
I'm actually, I'm not going to wait uh, to beat the charges. Even if I lose um, those charges, I'm still filing lawsuits for the way I was treated in prison. There was a number of laws that were broken uh, during my 50 days in prison. Um, solitary confinement is considered torture. I was being tortured in Canadian jail. I mean, that's unacceptable. I was placed in metal box, suffocating. Water would not be provided to me. I was psychologically uh, harassed, intimidated, constantly fearing for my life when I learned from at least four different inmates that were offered to beat me up, to hurt me. When I was taken from my solitary confinement to a concrete cell, there was absolutely no reason for it. When I was transferred to Edmonton, there was no reason for the transfer whatsoever. When they placed me in a mental institution, there was absolutely no reason for it. I'm going after them regardless what happens with the charges. Well, Godspeed, uh, Pastor Arthur Pawlowski, and thank you so much. I'm glad to uh, to see you again. Glad uh, to see that you're you're uh, well, reasonably well under the circumstances. Uh, be well, and we'll uh, we'll speak again soon. I hope. Thank you so much. Thank you for covering this story, Pastor Arthur Pawlowski, Street Church in Calgary. All right. When we come back, NASA has spotted a record-breaking, huge comet, and it's headed our way. Oh joy! Back with that story in three minutes. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Well, it's massive, it's icy, and it's heading our way. NASA has spotted a record-breaking comet that is uh, headed nearer to Earth. And here to uh, tell us more is Dr. Jesse Rogerson. He's an astrophysicist and assistant professor, Division of Natural Science at York University. Dr. Rogerson, thanks for being with us. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me here. So uh, let's, uh, let's uh, get right to the, the most important question. <laughs> it is, it's, it's big, it's headed our way. Any danger of uh, a collision? No, no, definitely no danger of collision. I can definitely, you know, you hear these stories like, oh, an asteroid was discovered or a comet was discovered. And, you know, you think think back to all the possibilities that could happen. Um, but don't worry, this comet isn't going to get anywhere near dangerous for us. Um, it was discovered. It is on its way into the inner solar system, but it's actually not going to get that close. The closest it's going to get is about 1 billion kilometers away, which is like the distance to Saturn. So it's actually pretty, pretty chill for us. Don't worry about it. Pretty chill, no pun intended. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, when we say it's massive, how massive is it? Great. Okay, so comets in general, like, you know, that you've seen those pictures of comets like Hale-Bopp or Halley's Comet from like years past. Yes. Neowise a couple years ago. Those ones, those are typically like the size of a, a small city. They're like 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers in size. This one is the record-breaking largest comet ever found, something in the to the tune of like 150 kilometers wide. So much larger than normally found. And you put that in perspective, that's like, I think it's bigger than Prince Edward Island, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So it's like it's quite a large hunk of of rock uh, to be rock, rock and ice to be floating through space. So definitely a record breaker. So that's its that's its diameter. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long is it? Well, I mean, we don't really have. That's a good question. We don't really have a great uh, estimate of its actual physical shape. So the like the 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 nucleus, the comet itself, the rock and the ice. Uh, solid parts would be roughly like if you could assume that it's a sphere, it would be roughly about 
150 kilometers wide, but we don't really know what its shape is because we, it's not really possible to resolve the actual object at the distance that it is. The best telescope off the planet, which is the Hubble Space Telescope, has taken a crack at this, confirmed its size to be in the range of 150 kilometers, but we can't really get a good re resolution of its shape. So we don't really know. But if you're looking at like it turning into like comet with like its long tail, it's not quite at that stage yet. It has an atmosphere that's starting to grow, which we call the coma, as it's moving towards the inner solar system. But in terms of the length of the, the tail, I'm not sure. And how are comets formed? So those, that's a really good question. This comet, the reason this comet is so exciting is because it not only is it massive, but it's also one, uh, a comet, if you trace back its orbit, it seems to be coming from the, this, this place in the solar system that we call the Oort cloud. So the, if you look at the, the structure of the solar system, you have, you have where we are, and then you have the asteroid belt, you have the gas giant planets. Then you have this ring around the solar system called the Kuiper belt, that's where Pluto is. And then if you go way beyond the Kuiper belt, way, way beyond into the deep recesses of the solar system, you end up this place called the Oort cloud. And they're made up of these big, it's made up of these big chunks of ice that are left over from the formation of the solar system and probably kicked out there by planets like Jupiter or Saturn. So how is a comet formed? In this case, it was it's material that never became part of a planet, never became part of a moon, and was kicked out to the edge of the solar system by the big honking planets like Jupiter or Saturn. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. So kind of a uh, cosmological cancel culture. <laughs> a cosmological... Uh time capsule is what I would like to call it ah, okay. because it, it, it never was processed. It, it's like the solar system formed. It never became part of a planet. It got kicked out and it's just been sitting out there in the edge of the solar system for billions of years without anybody touching it, anybody looking at it. And now it's finding its way to the inner solar system. Okay. Two quick questions in the time that remains. Could we launch a probe and land on that? And what could we learn from it? Oh man, that's a great, so presumably yes. You would need to get to the orbit of Saturn by the year 2030, which is when it's going to make its closest approach. Like to, the closest approach will be to roughly the distance of Saturn. So that's doable, but you would have to kick a project into high gear. And then uh, if you say you did that, so you actually made that happen, then you would, you'd be learning about the conditions of the early solar system. If you were to like sample it, you'd be figuring out like these rocks and ice is formed 4.5 billion years ago. What were the conditions like then? How hot was the sun at that time? Um, what, were, what were the rocks that originally made the solar system? These are the kind of questions you'd be answering. Oh, very cool. And final question, uh, do these things have like a, a long elliptical orbit? In other words, will it come by this way again and when? Oh man, great question. 
Uh, yes, huge elliptical orbit. Its orbit is 3 million years long. So it will come by this way again, but 3 million years from now. So this is our one chance to get a good look at it. All right, fantastic. This is fascinating stuff. <laughs> uh, Dr. Dr. Rogerson, I hope you'll join us again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jesse Rogers, an astrophysicist and assistant professor, Division of Natural Science at York University. All right, when we come back, the homeschool advisor. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. And a quick shout out to Declan Phillips on the big audio board. You're doing a great job, kiddo. Great job. All right. Uh, well, he's learning a, a skill, a common art, if you will. A skill, uh, an art of the hand, and uh, that's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks with our homeschool advisor, Ruth Gaskowski. She's the founder of HumanitasFamily.net, Humanitas, H-U-M-A-N-I-T-A-S, HumanitasFamily.net. Every Wednesday, or every Tuesday, rather, we uh, discuss homeschooling, and we've been talking about the common arts, and we're going to pick that up again today uh, with... Well, you tell us, Ruth, we're going to talk about the common art of navigation. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. Um, uh, yeah. I thought we'd start with the common art of navigation because this is something that I'm working on right now. And after all, we really should know where we are and where we're going without the help of a machine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, why, why do we still bother with navig navigational skills and education if we have uh, as you, you know, we have GPS, uh, we have compasses on our phones and, and all of these pieces of gadgetry. Why do we need to teach it in education? Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a good question. This question was actually already posed by sort of the godfather of orienteering, um, in 1955. So over 50 years ago, they already said, why bother with map and compass when the roads are numbered and the trails are clearly marked? So this isn't a new question. Um, and nowadays, uh, almost everyone uses a GPS and we're, let's admit it, we're literally lost without it. But uh, along with this dependence uh, really comes a lot of significant loss. Uh, we lose an important fundamental skill of being independent uh, when we position ourselves. And uh, we also sacrifice kind of a connection to the environment we actually travel through. Because as we look at the GPS and the maps, uh, the environment around us actually becomes more abstract. And our brain and our experience is more abstract of, of the world around us. And if this doesn't sound compelling enough, consider this. Psychologists have actually found that when we blindly follow a GPS, we're not actually exercising our crucial navigational skills. And these actually atrophy. So this is not like learning how to ride a bike and you can always do it. If you don't use your navigational skills, your hippocampus actually shrinks. And they have wow. found this in studies. So, And this can even be a contributor to age-related dementia. So we are literally losing our ability to navigate independently. That's and, a, that's uh, and that's, sorry. No, I'm just saying that's amazing. I, I remember going on long road trips, camping trips with my, with our family. We'd pile it, all seven of us would pile into our 1966 Ford Meteor with a tent trailer in the back. And my mother, back in those days, the Brewers Retail, it was called, they would give you maps of Ontario and that thing would be spread out on the dashboard. And my mother in the passenger seat she was the navigator, and we had to navigate using a good old Brewer's retail map. So 
You were saying, uh, I was reading here, where you, you gave me some notes about the Navy. Uh, they they yeah. require their graduates. Will you tell me, what do the Navy graduates, how do they learn to navigate? Well, apparently they aren't learning it anymore because what happened is the crew of U.S. Marine officers was actually reprimanded and removed from training because they cheated on a land navigation course because uh, they hadn't looked up the... Um, they hadn't learned how to navigate with compass and map, and they looked it up <laughs> kind of on a tool that they weren't supposed to use. And the U.S. Navy actually is now starting to require their graduates to know celestial navigation again because they realize it's kind of strategically unsound when you rely on GPS technology. So even though these machines are very useful, relying on them um, kind of makes us very dependent and uh, we always used to have these skills independently. So it's really still good to foster them because they also strengthen uh, the types of thinking skills that are used in all sorts of spatial processes. And it kind of builds confidence and self-reliance when you really know where you're going and you can get along with just a compass and a map. There you go. Follow the North Star. Okay, so how do you incorporate navigation um, into the curriculum? Well, if you're in Scandinavia or one of those Nordic countries, it's actually part of their national curriculum. So it's awesome there. Uh, orienteering was invented in Sweden kind of in the late uh, 19th century. Um, so there it's a really, really big thing. And it's part of school because they realize it's not just essential kind of for knowing how to get about, but it's connected with uh, physical education. So orienteering requires peak physical shape and can be combined with circuit training. So you can combine it with phys ed, which is one of the things we're doing. Um, you can combine it with science. So studying uh, celestial navigation takes a lot of astronomy knowledge. Uh, combine it with geography, where you study landforms, coordinate planes and maps, and also interestingly history. When you study the tools of navigation, it's really fascinating to kind of realize that, you know, the first compass was invented over 2,000 years ago, like in the Han Dynasty in China. Um, and when we kind of track navigation through time, we also have, I think, a bigger sense of, you know, where we belong and uh, what the history behind it all is. Very cool. Very cool. So how can parents uh, who don't homeschool integrate uh, the common arts such as navigation into their child's education? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I think my biggest piece of advice is don't add it to your schedule, uh, but don't overcommit yourself and overschedule your family. This can leave you time to actually kind of have the freedom and the flexibility to explore a common art, such as navigation, together kind of in a project-based approach. So I would recommend making, uh, making use of the connections you may have in your circle of family or friends. Is there a scout leader? a geographer, a cartographer, anybody who's done any uh, military service or a surveyor among them, those are all people who will have navigational skills to begin with. Um, uh, and sometimes it can just take a couple of weekends. I put some resources on my website where um, this is something we just did this morning where you can print out a topographic map uh, from your local area. So we are right next to a conservation area and we were able to create a topographic map all the way down to the details, to the little hills, the little creeks, and the bogs. And you can kind of create points of interest that you want to try and locate. And so there's lots of um, different tools that you can do really just over the weekends and take time together, not just for your child, but as a family. So try not to outsource it, but make it uh, a family project.
The Common Art of Navigation. And um, you're organizing or you're planning a series of these types of skills workshops for kids and teens. Uh, you, you're going to include uh, navigation. What other, what other uh, skill workshops are, are, can we look forward to? Yeah, well, we're uh, also creating a herbal and edible plant uh, walk workshop where students will learn about kind of what plants can be used for medicinal purposes or uh, culinary things. Uh, there's going to be carpentry workshops and uh, also firearm safety courses for those who are old enough to participate. I'm looking here too. Small engine repair. That's when I should attend. Yes, <laughs> those are always useful. All right. And, and again, we can absolutely nobody knows how to fix anything anymore. This is, you know, the disposable society, the toaster breaks, you throw it out because uh, it's cheaper than taking it to the repair shop, I guess, buying a new one. Uh, but all of these uh, courses uh, eventually will find their way to humanitasfamily.net, humanitasfamily.net. Correct? That's correct. Ruth, great job, as always. Thanks, Richard, for having me. And we'll My talk pleasure. again next week. Okay, Ruth Gaskowski, humanitasfamily.net. All right, plenty of shows still to come. Hour two, up and coming in mere moments. Uh, we have, uh, well, we'll revisit a conversation with a professor of law at uh, Lakehead University about how to keep our government accountable for invoking the Emergency Act uh, with no justification. They used a mountain of lies to justify that. And uh, we'll also... Let's see. Well, I think we'll get uh, uh, Jacob and Brandon in here, co-hosts of The Swing, a little bit later, and we'll talk some baseball and some hockey. And uh, Kelly Brown from Rubicon Capital, independent investor and unofficial and accidental COVID data analyst, is seeing some disturbing data coming out of Alberta and B.C. with regards to excess deaths in uh, ages 0 to 44, something like 70% higher than expected. How do we explain that? All right, hour two awaits. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Hey, Richard! Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard! The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back and welcome to Hour 2. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but still plenty of uh, show to come, including, uh, we'll replay an earlier conversation I had with a, um, a professor at the Bore Alaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University, Ryan Alford. I uh, will be here towards the tail end. 
and uh, not the tail end of the comet. We talked about that earlier, but the tail end of the program. And uh, he'll talk about, well, he wrote this piece for the uh, uh, McDonnell-Laurier Institute. And it has to do with accountability and how the federal government must be held to account for invoking the Emergency Act uh, with, with little or no justification. In fact, it's interesting uh, that Perrin Beatty, who was the former Solicitor General under the uh, uh, Brian Mulroney conservative government back in the uh, mid-'80s, I think it was around 1986, uh, Beatty uh, sort of helped draft this piece of legislation called the Emergency Act, which was to replace the War Measures Act, which was invoked in 1970 during the FLQ crisis by the current Prime Minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And uh, it was widely criticized because of its sweeping powers across the country, even though the uh, the kidnapping and the murder of uh, British Ambassador uh, James Cross and the, sorry, yes, the kidnapping of James Cross, the murder of uh, Pierre Laporte, who was the deputy premier of Quebec at the time. Uh, Horrible, horrible situation, but uh, there were many uh, human rights abuses or civil rights abuses during the War Measures Act. And so they revised that and they called it the Emergencies Act. And Perrin Beatty recently, who is now 70 years old, made the statement that he never in his wildest imagination ever you know, dreamed that, that the, the Emergency Act would be utilized in his lifetime. The threshold was pretty high. The bar was set pretty high to invoke it. The government, the, the country, had to be facing almost an existential threat. And so it would appear that the federal government tried to create this false narrative that the Freedom Convoy was somehow an insurrection. Then they made these false claims, demonstrably false claims, that the Freedom Convoy was being funded by this group of Trump uh, supporting insurrectionists. Not true. Not true. In fact, they're still clinging to that lie, even though the the director of FinTrack testified at a a parliamentary hearing and said there was no substance to that that accusation. And then there was, uh, you know, more lies. The truckers are arsonists, false. The truckers are rapists, never a shred of evidence to support that crazy theory. And on and on it went. But now, how do we hold them to account? That's the question. What is the mechanism? There is a parliamentary review, but that's being controlled by the liberals and their NDP allies. So we'll talk with uh, Ryan Elford about that. Jonathan Kay, editor and podcaster for the online publication Quillette, an occasional National Post columnist as well. He'll be here uh, to talk about yet another statue being torn down. This one's interesting. It was a, a woke mob of sorts, as he'll explain, not the prototypical mob of vigilantes, you know, roaming the streets, indiscriminately destroying and smashing, Um But this one was the statue of Alexander Wood. And it was um, to commemorate, well, he was a a pioneer in the gay community, an early resident of the town of York, Muddy York, 
in the, uh, the 19th century. And they tore that statue down of Alexander Wood. He'll explain why. Right now, Kelly Brown is uh, with us, independent investor, Rubicon Capital, accidental and unofficial COVID data analyst. And uh, he alerted me uh, last night about um, some disturbing data he's looking at coming out of Alberta and British Columbia. It has to do with weekly excess deaths in a particular cohort, zero to 44 years of age. Kelly, welcome back. How are you? Pretty well today, uh, Richard. Good to speak with you again. Likewise. Well, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Uh, this certainly deserves a considerable media attention. Doesn't seem to be getting any. Uh, first of all, how were you alerted to this data coming out of Alberta and British Columbia? Well, I, this is just sort of some of the regular research that I do around this. Um, uh, this is this is data coming out of Stats St Statistics Canada uh, that I monitor on an ongoing basis and. Uh, I paid attention to, to weekly weekly all-cause mortality and excess deaths for some time now. And uh, we have, uh, for all of Canada, we've got some decent data up until October 2021. But we've got uh, even better data going to the end of the year 2021 for Alberta and British Columbia. We're sort of still waiting for some of the other provinces to come in. Okay, so explain what, what is meant by excess deaths. So excess deaths, so year to year, any given period, the number of, of deaths that occur in any age group are fairly predictable. Uh, and uh, all cause mortality tracks uh, those predictable deaths year in, year out. And so like a baseline. It's, a, it's, a, it's effectively a baseline. That's correct. And that can be broken down by, by age groups. So by, by between... age, sex, geography any number right. of ways and statistics Canada does a pretty good job of it. So between zero and 44, there would be a baseline. There would be some variance year to year because maybe unfortunately some years, maybe there's more traffic fatalities or uh, more, more overdoses or more God forfend suicides, but, but, but within kind of a, a pretty predictable baseline. There's a pretty, yeah, it's a range. It's a pretty predictable range. And we're just for purposes of my analysis, I'm just using the midpoint of the range. Okay. So, and, and so when you, when, when the number of deaths, which as we said, are normally predictable, when they start diverging from that center line, either above or below, there's some change happening in the population. And because as, as we say, again, these are predictable, uh, we, we should be asking why. Okay, and what kind of increase are we seeing in excess deaths? So we're seeing an, an alarming increase. Um, in Alberta and BC, we're now at the end of the year showing ex excess deaths are now showing 70% of the deaths that we would normally expect. So what that means, just put another way, if we, if in any given year you would expect 10 deaths, well, we're getting 17. So we're getting 1.7 deaths for every one death we would expect. It's not quite double, but it's getting there. That's Alberta and BC combined. And, and, and just for purposes of this discussion, we're, we're only talking about zero to 44. We're talking about the ages that are not affected by COVID. All right. So if we look at this time period, 
with these excess deaths. And so what we're looking at uh, sort of mid-2020 when this, uh, or maybe even a little earlier when the spike begins, um, maybe early 2020, we see this, in, this, this upward spike and then to the end of 2021. So right. again, causation is not, or sorry, correlation is not causation, but what sort of events would seem to coincide with this spike? Yeah, so it's, it's useful to break it down um, year by year. So in 2020, once the lockdowns hit, the excess mortality for these provinces that had been oscillating around zero jumped right away to 30%. We were seeing 30% more deaths than what we would normally expect. And that number was pretty consistent uh, through the end of 20, 2020 and into the first half of 2021. It's, it's accelerated in the last half of 2021. And one of the contributing factors that unfortunately British Columbia and Alberta, as we know, are dealing with is that they are dealing with a, an opioid epidemic, an illicit drug epidemic. And, and that, is causing, um, that is causing a large, a large portion of this mortality. Um, and I've done some I've done some work around that, and I can so far, at least in BC, I can attribute about thirty percent of the increase in excess mortality to illicit drug deaths. It's a little bit higher in Alberta, um, and those illicit drug deaths have have accelerated actually uh, as well in the last half of twenty twenty one. They they haven't gone away with reopening. They've actually gotten worse. Right. So we, I mean, we've had an opioid crisis, arguably, in this country for what, decades? I, at least a decade, I would say, yeah. probably. So, um, and, and the, the lockdowns are now over. Um, and yet this, this uh, opioid, I mean, if we're going to attribute it to say, you know, depression or, you know, lack of coping skills uh, because of COVID restrictions and so forth, the lockdown has ended. And yet the I guess the, the the malaise, you know, continues the 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 feeling of hopelessness, perhaps, and dread and uncertainty and these sorts of things. The the, the deaths of despair are are definitely continuing to occur, and and it appears to accelerate. Look, any way you like, we can get into the attribution, and I'm sure we will. But you know, any way you slice this, this is a public health emergency. There there are almost twice the amount of people dying in the ages zero to forty four than we would expect to die in any given year prior to the pandemic. So at the very least, this is an indictment of the public health response. Here we are two years later, and we're dying at 70% of the rate, 170% of the rate that we would expect. Uh, and again, the data comes from where? Statistics Canada. Mm. This, yeah. this, uh, we're just about out of time, but this, this mirrors, I would say, in a certain extent, maybe the numbers are a little different than what Edward Dowd was talking about from uh, the, the former BlackRock portfolio manager, BlackRock portfolio manager who came on, uh, who was investigating CDC data along with uh, uh, an unnamed insurance analyst. Uh, and he found what he called this Vietnam era event among uh, the millennial uh, cohort in terms of excess deaths, like 60,000 excess deaths. So uh, the numbers are a little different because obviously, you know, it's a different scale candidate in the United States, but seems to be a similar phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let me see if I can, you know, if I can actually get you the, you know, the numbers here. So 
you know, for, uh, for BC and Alberta. Um, in 2021, we've got 2,000, 2,000 excess deaths in, in, in zero to 44 ages in BC and Alberta alone. And if, you, if we were able to prorate that to the whole country, that's 8,000 roughly. So yeah, it's, these are big numbers. Uh, I'm guessing you'll be looking for uh, data coming out of the rest of Canada as well. You bet. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll have you back on once uh, you have that squared away. Kelly, thank you so much for this. It's an important story. Thanks again, Richard. Great work. Kelly Brown, Rubicon Capital Independent Investor. And you can follow him on Twitter at Rubicon Capital underscore at Rubicon Capital underscore. All right. Woke mobs going after statues. And uh, this time of a, uh, a prominent uh, gay man in the early days of Muddy York. John Kay has that story next. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. So another statue of a dead white guy torn down the other day. The woke mob can't help themselves. They see a a dead white guy represented in a statue, and it must come down. Colonialist. Colonialist. <laughs> I can't even say it. Colonialist. That's a tough one. Colonialist. Slave owner, no question. It must come down. So, yesterday, was it the day before, the statue in question was one of uh, Alexander Wood. And we'll find out who Alexander Wood is or was. Jonathan Kay is the editor and podcaster for the online publication of Quillette and uh, happy to have him aboard again. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? Good. How are you? Very well. So this statue of uh, Alexander Wood, uh, first of all, who was he? So this is a weird case because Alexander Wood was, until about 15 minutes ago, as a historical icon, he was a darling of progressives. And that's because in the I guess, uh, was it late 18th, early 19th century, um, he, was, he was living in Upper Canada. He was living in Toronto, or, or I guess York, as, as, as it was then known. Um, and he seems to have been a gay man, even though it's complicated because at one point he actually sued somebody who called him gay, because of course in those days it wasn't, you know. LGBT rights were in their infancy, let's say. And so a statue of him was put up in the gay village here in Toronto, where I live. Uh, it's sort of church in Wellesley. It's what, one of North America's best known gay villages celebrating this historical figure, this, pi this presumed pioneer of, of gay Canadian life. Um, it was erected with much fanfare, I think in 2005 with, a lot of money raised by the local Church Wellesley uh, Business Association. It's essentially gay-owned uh, retail. I'm not exclusively, but that's, you know, the gay village. And money kicked in by government. And I think in today's dollars, the statue costs them like $300,000. It's a beautiful statue, or it was a beautiful statue. Um, the sculptor, a gay man, Del Newbigging, unfortunately, he passed away in 2012. Uh, just an amazing statue. And it's not like one of these statues that gets torn down where it's like from you know, 200 years ago, and um, like it, it, it depicts some white guy with like Indian women at his feet or, you know, it, it, it was a very politically correct statue celebrating a gay pioneer, um, but they destroyed it anyway. Like they didn't take it down, they destroyed it. 
and this is only 17 years after it was erected, which must be some kind of record. I mean, I think Toronto has that kind of, because it's, again, it's not some old venerable statue of John A. Macdonald that's been around forever. Right. I don't think those right. should come down either. This was put, this was put up by progressives and progressives tore it down. And is it because, again, I, I mentioned, you know, he, he looks like a, a, a white guy. He looks like he, he come from a particular era and therefore he must've been a colonialist or a slave owner. Is that basically the, the mentality? It's more complicated than that, but also less incriminating. Um, look, by the way, I'm sure Alexander Wood probably had the same views as everybody of his era. I'm sure, you know, if we asked him about race issues, if you were around today, he, everybody was a racist back then. I'm sure he probably was a racist, but that's not why they tore the statue down. They tore the statue down because I, I guess it was like after the whole George Floyd stuff, um, and, and after, and specifically after these uh, stories about uh, suspected grave sites being found on the, the former grounds of residential schools here in Canada, this is in uh, late May 2021, I mean, as you know, there was like this sort of very big activist furor that went up, and Wood was accused, so this is the statute had already been up for 16 years, Wood was accused of being some kind of architect of residential schools, and they they dug up some what they claimed was evidence of it. But what makes this story crazy is it's not like Ed, uh, what's his name Egbert Ryerson or whatever the name of the Ryerson Edgerton Edgerton Ryerson Edgerton right yeah, Ryerson, yeah. Uh, lent his name to Ryerson University, where you know there there really is a good case to be made that he actually was connected in the you know the formative stages to uh, residential schools. <laughs> Alexander Wood had nothing to do with residential schools. He died decades before the first residential school was created. It is absolutely true that he did have a strong hand in financing the creation of a school for Indigenous people. That school was created and financed on the personal request of a First Nations chief who had snowshoed 700 kilometers to York specifically to campaign for funds to build the school. And... Alexander Wood helped him build that school of, you know, of that historical crime. He is guilty, you know, helping a first nations chief build, build a school to educate his people. This was decades before residential schools were created. It was, I think five full decades before compulsory attendance of residential schools was instituted. What he did had nothing to do with residential schools, but the social panic went up last year saying we have to tear the statue down because he's connected to residential schools an entirely nonsensical accusation. And on that basis, a quarter million dollar statue created by a gay artist to commemorate memory of a gay Canadian, as we would now call him, this is before Canada, but was torn down, literally thrown in the dumpster. I was alerted to this because uh, a resident of the gay village here in Toronto sent me a photo of the statue sitting in a dumpster, um, it, which, is, which is crazy because I, I have been contacted by people who said, I want to buy the statue. Like how can, but it's apparently just been destroyed. Um, and the, you know, the artist died 10 years ago. There's nothing he, he can do about it. It's just, is there any security it. camera footage perhaps that might, um, oh, well, I mean, the thing was done sir, just to be clear. So this, this is, I should have clarified this earlier. Like this wasn't like a bunch of hooligans who came in and like, you know, we've all seen footage of mobs tearing down other statues. There's this, there was nothing illegal about the statue coming down. Because the, the BIA, sorry, I guess Business Improvement Association, I think that's what it stands for. The, the, the same BIA 
in the church Wellesley Village that raised funds for the creation of the statue 17 years ago, they had were taken up with the social panic about how this guy was some kind of icon of residential schools, which he wasn't. And it was on their request that it was taken down. It was not an illegal, I mean, it was a completely stupid and irrational decision. John, um, yeah. Jonathan, I got to run um, okay. very quickly <laughs> to the Quillette podcast. Just go to uh, Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. Just enter Quillette, which is spelled like Gillette, but Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Wherever you get your podcasts, um, if you like the sound of my voice, you can hear more of it. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. All right. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Take care. All right. When we come back, a little Leaf talk, a preview of the Leafs versus the Sabres uh, with my guys, Jacob and Brandon. Stand by. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, let's preview tonight's tilt. The Leafs versus the Sabres. The Leafs go into game number 73 on the schedule, having clinched a playoff spot. And uh, the Sabres, the big story, I guess, would be the... uh, the NHL debut of last year's uh, first overall draft pick, Owen Power. Jacob uh, Goldback and uh, Brandon DuPont, co-hosts of The Swing, are here. Welcome, boys. I shouldn't call Thanks, you Rich. men. You're men. You're young men. My apologies. I, yeah, I appreciate Thanks, it. And yes, I would agree with you. May, may, Brandon, uh, Brandon still might be a boy. I'm not sure. but <laughs> No, he's a young man. You're both fine young men. So... Um, this is revenge night, right? Because uh, the Leafs did not fare last well uh, last time against uh, the Sabers. Uh, now um, I'm looking at the uh, the injury list. Jake Muzzin back on the uh, the injury list. What's happened? Yeah, I mean, with Muzzin right now, it might just be a maintenance thing because he he's been hurt so often throughout the year. They've got a bit of an easier stretch of games right now, and it starts tonight with uh, with the Buffalo Sabers. It might just be a, a maintenance day for him. I wouldn't look into it too much. Ah, okay. And because I see um, the defense pairings, um, Lubishkin is doing double duty uh, unless something has changed. He's going to be on the first pairing with uh, Riley, and then he's going to be on the uh, the third pairing uh, with um, Giordano. I mean, isn't, you know, now that they've clinched the playoffs, shouldn't it all be about time management and giving these guys some rest? Uh, yeah, I would think so. Um, I don't understand why he would be doing double duty. I don't know if they well, got into some roster uh, roster constraints, but um, yeah, that, I mean, that seems bizarre to me as well. Hold on. Have you seen, like, have they released the lines yet? Because they do have, even with Muzzin out tonight, they still do have six D-men that are dressed, Brody, Giordano, 
Hall, Lilligren, uh, Labushkin, and Riley. Ah, okay. Well, yeah. I, you know what I do? I go by um, the Leafs Nation uh, line combinations. I check that every day, and they've got them. You're right. I mean, it wouldn't make sense if Lilligren is healthy. They would, uh, they would put him on there with uh, Giordano. Yeah. And uh, Shelgren gets the call in net, I guess. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. What it's looking like. Yeah, I like Shelgren in net for a game like this. You know, again, uh, he was really impressive against Montreal on Saturday night, so I think he's earned this start. But again, you know, a bit of an easier opponent in Buffalo. Now, that being said, the Leafs haven't fared well against the Sabres <laughs> this year. But regardless, a bit of an easier opponent. So give Campbell the night off. Uh, in the race to uh, 60, I mean, what is the limit for, for Austin Matthews? Is it 60? Is it 65? If he gets hot, I mean, he could hit, he could, he could, he could do 70. Yeah, 70s, 70s definitely in the cards. I know a lot of um, uh, betting sites, they've put a, as a, as a, an incentive for people to bet, they put Matthews at, you know, some major, uh, high value odds for him to score 70. I mean, it, it, yeah, as you mentioned, if, if he gets hot, then absolutely you can get 70. I think more realistically, I think we're looking at around, I'd say about 63, 64 goals to end the season. Um, when the games, you know, obviously these games probably, you know, they don't mean as much, right? Um, obviously, when in terms of how far they'll go in, in the standings and from here until uh, in the next uh, next couple of weeks here. But uh, yeah, no, I think he can definitely hit 70. He's, it's definitely in his capabilities. We've seen how how well he's played this season. Um, definitely in the running for the Hart Trophy. Um, I mean, I think he is uh, unbiasedly, but uh, I mean, I, I am biased, sorry, but uh, I think he's definitely in the running for the Hart. And, and anybody who disagrees, I, I think is, is, is foolish and hasn't watched enough of his play this season. Right, right. Jacob, what about the idea that, uh, you know, he, he scored 50 and 50, but he did it. He didn't do it like great from game one, as some others have done, Gretzky and others, you know, great from the first 50 games. But to score 50 uh, in 50 games towards the latter half is, is more difficult, would you argue? I think it's ludicrous. You're right. All the people, there's so many people on Twitter, and they're all Leaf haters who are discounting Matthew, saying that, you know, it, it wasn't 50 in the first 50 games, so it doesn't count. Are, are you kidding me? Why does it matter? The guy put up 51 goals in 50 games. Why does harder. it matter when it, it happened? My point is it's harder because as you get into the season and there's more at stake and play, and teams are in the playoff hunt and it's crunch time, I would argue, and teams starting to tighten up defensively, it's harder to score 50 in the later, you know, in 50 games later in the schedule. And the Good other point. thing, too, is, is you know, Matt, like it, you're fresh out of the gate at the start of the season. You know, Matthews is already, you know, 16 games into the year, which is when he started on the streak, some, something around somewhere around there. He's, he'd already played a bunch of games. You know, he'd already had some wear and tear. I agree with you. I think it, it, it definitely, if anything, it is more difficult. And just people that are discounting it, saying that it wasn't in the first 50 games, I think they're just not thinking <laughs> right very quickly around the horn here uh prediction for tonight's score uh brandon um what was i gonna say last time you asked for a prediction against buffalo i picked the leaves and they ended up losing and then you asked for a prediction against the stars and i said the stars would win and the leaves ended up winning so i don't i'll not be the jinx here and i'll say buffalo and p.s i think the leaves will win so that's what i'm gonna say buffalo oh you're covering your yeah, I'll, I'll bet both red and black all right <laughs> and uh and uh, jacob quick score no, I, I got to go with the Leafs, and I think it's a blowout. I mean, the thing is, they're either going to blow the Sabres out or they're going to lose. I think they win 6-2, to two and Matthews has a goal. 
I'm going to say 7-3 with Leafs. I'm going to end things on a positive note. I've been a naysayer too much lately. So I'm going to be positive 7-3 Leafs. All right, gentlemen, Brandon DuPont, Jacob Goldback, co-hosts of The Swing, heard Mondays at 3 right here on The Mighty Saga. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks, Richard. Holding the government accountable for the Emergency Act. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. The Emergencies Act, which um, gave police extra powers to deal with protesters up in Ottawa, it saw to the uh, which uh, led to uh, the freezing of bank accounts. Anyone who supported uh, the truckers could have had their bank accounts frozen and now flagged for life. Uh, these extraordinary powers that were granted to the government. We're about to be extended, but the uh, the Canadian Senate, thank God, I think made it pretty clear they were holding firm. They would not extend or vote to extend the Emergencies Act. And so I guess rather than face this political embarrassment, the, uh, the Emergency Act was suspended or rescinded. And now there is a, a parliamentary review looking at whether the Emergency Act was justified. And the Liberals are, are trying to uh, to limit the scope and the length of that review because things are coming to light uh, that uh, that don't make them look (laughs) very good. Mainly that the the justification for the Emergency Act seems to have been built on a mountain of lies. So how do we hold the federal government accountable, not only for using the Emergency Act, but also for justifying it uh, with um, misleading information? Ryan Alford is a professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University, and he wrote a, a terrific article that can be found at uh, the McDonald Laurier uh, Institute's website, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm well, Richard. Thank you, and my pleasure. So let's talk about uh, some of the misleading information uh, that was used to justify the imposition of this Emergencies Act. Um, where, where should we begin? Should we, we talk about the, the funding of the truckers? Absolutely. And I want to make it clear, when they provided this information to Parliament, it was subject to a statutory requirement of the Emergencies Act. The Emergencies Act takes very seriously the idea the government needs to justify the invocation of the Act. So what was tabled in Parliament was shocking to many legal observers. I'm not just speaking for myself, but for many people. A unsigned unsworn document that makes reference to hacked information. So when we're talking about the funding, the official explanation required by the Emergencies Act that was tabled in Parliament at the beginning of the debate refers explicitly to hacked information. No chain of custody, no indication that it's accurate. And then it was later revealed, and this is in sworn testimony to the Public Safety and National Security Committee, that that information as assessed by CBC News. That's in the rationale as well. So its key sources are hacked information with no chain of custody and CBC News analysis of what is clearly information with no chain of custody. It's rebuked by information provided by FinTrack to a parliamentary committee, which says that the allegation in that explanation that 80% or more of the donations came from the United States was patently false. 
Right. So it's interesting. <laughs> the media, uh, which in my estimation are simply, you know, carrying water for the government, they float this narrative. Then the police or whatever authority uh, acts on this report from the media. Uh, but it's kind of this circular logic. Well, you know, or the police will say, well, we read it in the media. Uh, right. And that goes into affidavits filed by the police, which is really quite shocking especially when the media outlet in question is what we would call, with respect to foreign countries, state-controlled media. Precisely. So um, there was absolutely no um, veracity to this story that, uh, you know, that, that this was a, uh, uh, an insurrection being, uh, being uh, hatched by, you know, pro-Trump elements in the United States and that, and that certainly, you know, they were talking about insurrection. They were, it seems they were trying to turn uh, the, uh, the freedom convoy into another January 6th event, but there were other, other um, misleading, well, there were lies really. One of them by, I believe it was the security minister uh, suggesting that the truckers were, uh, some of the truckers were rapists or potential rapists. There was no, there were, there were no reports about that. Where did that come from? Well, it was remarkable because, again, in this official explanation, when they're talking about the links between the organizers of the trucker convoy and ideologically motivated violent extremists, which is the language of the criminal code for terrorists, they, they describe those links as ideological links. So not logistical links, not practical links, no allegation that those ideologically motivated violent extremists are funding the protests or in any way supporting the protests materially, but rather that the protesters are somehow being egged on or being supported merely by virtue of some sort of congruency of belief. That's clearly not legally adequate. And whenever the, the minister was challenged on this, he backpedaled rather furiously. Um, so it was interesting. Even when the media, tame as it was, said, well, can you tell us more about this? He immediately backed away. So it raises the implication that some of these rationales for the invocation of the Emergencies Act were made in bad faith, and that's extremely troubling. Uh, indeed it is. Uh, Ryan, we'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, we'll talk about some of the other uh, lies that were floated by the uh, Liberal government to justify the imposition of the Emergencies Act, and then we'll, we'll find out how we can hold them accountable. Ryan Alfred, professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University, and his uh, article can be found at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. We know they lied. They know we know they lied. We know they know we know they lied, and still they lie. We're talking about the government's emergency uh, act that was uh, invoked on a mountain of lies. And uh, Ryan Alford is a professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at the, at the Lakehead University and is uh, here explaining how we should hold them accountable. Uh, Perrin Beatty, uh, Beatty was, um, now I'm not sure when uh, he drafted the current uh, Emergencies Act. I think it was in the mid-80s when he was Solicitor General. I could be wrong about that. But this was to replace the Old War Measures Act. And uh, Baron Beatty has recently said, you know, he never imagined in his wildest dreams that the Emergency Act would be uh, invoked in his lifetime. Uh, what were the what were the provisions that I mean, how did they change the Old War Measures Act uh, to make sure, you know, that um, 
our, our rights would be protected and, and, and how did it change? Basically, I guess is what I'm asking. It was meant to be more restrictive than the War Measures Act. So two key restrictions, one being that the emergency has to be of such magnitude that it threatens the national security and territorial integrity of Canada. So that's a very high threshold. And then the second is to say, well, depending on the type of public order emergency you have, you have to meet other thresholds. So you have to be talking about, essentially, as you mentioned, an insurrection or an attempt to overthrow the government of Canada. And that is why it was really hard to contemplate, you know, going out of the 80s into the 21st century, that there will be anything of that magnitude. And the problem being, if it is invoked without those conditions being met, the government is not just abusing its powers, but it's expanding the scope of its own powers beyond what it can do under the Constitution of Canada. And that's the most cynical and destructive thing you can do in a rule of law state. So it seems like they were trying to construct, falsely construct a narrative uh, that that there was an insurrection, that the the you know that this was this would meet the the, the test as sort of laid out by Pierre Beatty in the in the mid eighties. So now we have this this uh, parliamentary review. Uh, the Liberal government now has this alliance with the NDP. So what do we, what can we expect to come out of this review and uh, what would be the next step then to hold the government accountable? How do we do that? Well, again, this is just so cynical. About a week before the coalition was announced, and I imagine the negotiations were ongoing during that time, the government said, well, we want a neutral chair for this committee. Now, the normal convention is that the official opposition provides the chair of any oversight committee. That would be a conservative. But saying, well, we want a neutral chair they brought in Matthew Green of the NDP, and his statements about what the Parliamentary Review Committee is going to investigate clearly indicates that they're trying to promote the narrative that this was an insurrection, that it was funded with foreign funds, that it was directed from outside, and more importantly, to the end of saying that the people who were protesting and involved in constitutionally protected political activity should not be treated as people engaging in politics, but rather as people who are guilty of something akin to sedition. Yes, except that that uh, that narrative has been proven false. I mean, you had the director of FinTrack come on and say, no, that, that's not what happened. Well, you see the line that the Senate didn't buy and why they pulled the plug on the Emergencies Act at that moment. It was when the Senate said, we are not going to accept assertions brought forward by intelligence agencies if you won't let us see the intelligence underneath it. And right now, what they're going to do is they're going to play this double game where they rely upon intelligence summaries. They swear people to secrecy about them, and then they refuse to allow people, even members of parliament or senators, access to the underlying intelligence that would likely disprove it. Okay, so we're not going to get any um, a remedy through the review committee, uh, but you point to something called the Inquiry Act. That may be our salvation. It's remarkable. There's been no notice of this. It's a requirement in the Act. They have 60 days to convene a public inquiry, and this is a very serious matter. It's what we would have called previously a royal commission, headed up usually by a retired Supreme Court justice, someone of that stature. And that body can say, well, give us the, the rationale. Give us all the underlying information. And don't hide behind something like cabinet confidences or national security as a means of withholding this information. And when they make those documentary requests, it's done in a very public way, where if it's not being produced, the obvious question is, why are you trying to hide this? So it's really remarkable that we haven't heard about 
them announcing or setting up this public inquiry, despite the fact that they're clearly required to do so by statute. Well, how, what is the mechanism for launching this inquiry? It's just automatic. It, within 60 days of revoking uh, a proclamation of the Emergencies Act, it just comes into being, but the step that has to be taken is just an announcement by ordering council. So that's just essentially a document drawn up by the Privy Council Office and gets the signature of the Governor General saying this is what the Committee of Inquiry will investigate. Now that mandate, there's no scope for negotiation because it's established by the Emergencies Act. The only really uh, detail that needs to be filled in is the identity of the commissioners. Which judge is going to serve as the commissioner of the inquiry? So I don't understand why there's been any delay um, or why the government hasn't moved forward with this, given the clear statutory requirement and the ease of doing so. Now might be a good time for the leader of the opposition, Candace Bergen, to, to stand up in the House and just go, <clears throat> And they've done so. I, I know that I've seen people like Leslie Lewis talk about the timeline, about the 60 days rapidly coming to a close. Uh, this is the opportunity for the opposition to say this would be the most serious breach of the government's duties imaginable. And I think that would resonate with the Canadian public, because now, given that all this information is coming out, that the officially stated rationale was a pretext, people really want to know. And I think they're also aware that when it comes to something like this, it's not the crime that brings the government to heel. It's the cover-up. Where have we heard that before, Richard Nixon? <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Ryan. I appreciate it. And people can read uh, the, uh, the article, Holding the Government Accountable for Using the Emergency Act. Uh, Ryan Alford for Inside Policy at the McDonald Laurier Institute's website, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Thank you so much for this. A real pleasure, Richard. Anytime. Likewise. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, Brandon, and Declan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. Be well. Find joy. Hold fast. Be kind. But push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at 4. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.